What's happening? Eric right here, host of the Disco Posse podcast. Thank you for listening, subscribing, hopefully, and doing all sorts of other things like that. Wow, this is really going to be a fun episode because I get introduced to somebody new, and so do you. This is Jared Spiewak. Jared is the lead strategist and founder of Comet Fuel. He's a really interesting character in, first of all, his approach to things. Somebody who, if you actually go to his website, jaredspiewak.com, it's uh, it's actually hilariously awesome how he puts his stuff together. Uh, we talk about growth, we talk about automation, we talk about the human integration with marketing. Really, really great stuff. So definitely, you're going to want to check out Comet Fuel and much more. But in the meantime, speaking of things you do want to check out, I am going to ask you a little favor, because if you have data out there, you've got systems, you've got anything, make sure that you look at our amazing supporters, like the folks at Veeam Software, who have you covered for everything you need for your data protection needs, whether it's on-premises, in the cloud, whether it's cloud-native stuff. Oh, yeah, you thought it was cloud-native, thereby it is safe. No, actually, it's just a new way of deploying apps that are going to get ransomware and go away. Not cool. But you know what's cool? Ransomware getting fixed because you used Veeam software. So get on it. Go to vee.am forward slash discoposse. It's literally that easy. Go check it out. And they've got some really, really great offerings. So whatever you got, they can back that SaaS up. Oh, that's right. SaaS. Don't forget. Office 365, Teams, all sorts of good stuff. Ooh, and there's more new stuff coming. Wink, wink. All right, cool. Second piece. Speaking of protection. Uh, what about the data that's flying around on your Wi-Fi when you're sitting in a Starbucks or, sorry, don't mean to make it fun of Starbucks, just was the first one that came to my head. But when you're out there, do you really think that you're safe in the wild on someone else's Wi-Fi? I hope not, because you're not. So the best thing you can do is use super, super easy things like ExpressVPN. I'm a user, I'm loving it. Uh, so if you want to check it out, go to tryexpressvpn.com and forward slash Disco Posse. It's just quick, easy, you get a little deal, and on top of that, you protect your data in flight, protect your identity. All right, oh yeah, and go to diabolicalcoffee.com because I love the coffee. Oh, I'm the founder, there you go, full disclosure. All right, let's get to the good stuff. This is Jared Spiewak, enjoy. Hey, this is Jared Spiewak. I'm the founder and lead strategist of Comet Fuel, and you're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. Jared, this is really cool because when I saw your name come up on the guest list, uh, I've did a you know bit of background and and I always love to dig in. You are prolific in a lot of ways, especially for somebody who you you seem to have about thir- three decades of business sense in you, even though you haven't got three decades uh, on on the ground. So uh, we've got a lot of really cool stuff we can cover. If you want to give a quick intro about yourself before we get started, for folks that are new to you, uh, that'd be great. We'll talk about Comet Fuel. We'll talk about the problems you're solving. And also, this is super close to me because I've got more and more folks who are are really often struggling with how do they make the jump into better engagement? How do they get you know conversion? And really, what's the 
the science and the the techniques that we can wrap into them that you know we're kind of unlocking a lot of just regular good old-fashioned human behavior but it's for whatever reason we we fail at it all the time <laughs> yeah so I mean, there, there's a there's a ton that we could talk about that I think would be really interesting. But to uh, for anybody that that doesn't know me, my name's Jared Spuak, as hopefully you know by now. Uh, I got my you know when you say that I've that I have a lot of experiences because I got my start when I was 14. I decided that I was going to graduate early, so I started college at 15, graduated high school at 16, went to college for my marketing degree. I finished my degree a month after I turned 18. I was working at a corporate marketing job at the time, about a year into the corporate job. I was like, all right, cool. Like I'm done with this, just really not for me. And I signed up for a website called Upwork, which is much smaller at the time, just after their merger of Odesk and Elance. Started working for about $5 an hour with the goal of, hey, let's find another job somewhere. Did a bunch of interviews. No one wanted to hire me, even as I was building up a portfolio. So that obviously didn't work out. But pretty soon after I had essentially resigned to, well, you know, this is going nowhere. I got a full-time job offer from a marketing agency, which kind of transitioned me into, okay, great time to take this seriously. I started off as an on-page SEO. Within a couple months, I was promoted to lead SEO strategist. Over time, I freelanced more and more, went from full-time, part-time to no-time at that agency. And then I was sitting with all these clients. I was like, okay, great. What's next for me? Started my agency, Blue Dog Media, in 2018, February 2018. And then throughout 2019 and 2020, planned the rebrand over to Comet Fuel. And then early 2021, publicly launched Comet Fuel. Now, this is the fun part of... You know, even when you talked about Upwork and and coming through that, it's I, I'd love to actually tap into that. The transition from going from gig work to then agency to then effectively, you know, being agency, right? So now it's that's a a really you'd think that this could be a natural transition, but I find a lot of people get jammed up at stage one and they're still kind of grinding it out on Upwork, or maybe they're not even sure how to market themselves. And this is probably why you made the rapid transition from phase one to two to, you know, founding your own your own team on this one. So maybe talk about how you started with gig work, what was really cool about it, but then how you made that jump to kind of go beyond. Yeah, so I think that there were a couple of things that gave me an advantage over, you know, perhaps some other people. One was that I had a lot of agency experience going into this, which is that I, I worked for an agency. I had corporate marketing experience as well. So I had the more uh, corporate refinement type of structure that anyone that's worked in corporate is kind of used to. So I had that as well. So I had that sort of business sense. But I was also, when I was freelancing, working for a lot of other agencies at the same time. So I was taking a lot of effort observing as to how things were run so that I would have an idea of how things would need to look uh, once I went on my own, whether that was only freelancing in a more uh, business-minded focus or if that was to start my own agency. So I, I took a lot of observations there. The other thing that I did was I made sure that I had as large of a nest egg as possible where I was pulling in as a freelancer multiple five figures a month in revenue, which made it a much easier transition than being like, okay, great, I have one or two clients. Now let's kind of make this work. So I was very slow in that transition on one hand. And then once I decided, okay, great, I'm going to make a shift here. 
I went from full-time at that agency down to part-time. So I had that extra uh, levy that not everybody may have where I was half and half essentially. And I could build that up, make sure, okay, great, this is sustainable, cut it down to a couple hours, just providing support uh, over at the agency where if I needed to, I could have been like, hey, actually, my bad, I need to come back full time. (laughs) And luckily, I had a good enough relationship there that it would have been possible. And so that transition part was kind of slow. But then once I officially left the agency, I took about two months to figure out what exactly I wanted to do, whether I wanted to keep freelancing or if I wanted to start an agency. And then once I decided, okay, great, it's going to be an agency, I had that background experience and knowledge to go, this is what it needs to look like to a certain degree. And then once I had actually been in the saddle for about a year, I then said, okay, great, I've followed what I saw from other people. Now I feel comfortable. Let me now follow what I think I want to do uh, in my own way. So I would say because of my because of my experience, it, it was an easier transition. I had the opportunity to make it a uh, somewhat smooth transition that I know that not everybody would have that opportunity or an employer that was understanding enough to be like, hey, like go do your own thing. Like you know, we understand. Uh, but I w- I was lucky enough to be in that position. Well, and I think part of it is you you set yourself up for that opportunity in a lot of ways. It's uh, quite often, you know, we hear about sort of the Tim Ferriss's, you know, four-hour work week and and his approach and a lot of folks that have adopted that style. It It is actually okay to go to your boss and say, hey, I'm, you know, I've got this thing. Like, I, I like this. I've literally got a, a row of coffee beans behind me because I have a coffee, you know, company that I run. And I have a full-time job and I have a podcast. There's a way in which you can go to your boss and say, hey, I do these other things. And then at some point you say, and these other things are actually starting to generate revenue, but I, I'm in, I'm here and I like this. And then quite often they recognize that you are going to go anyways. The best thing they can do is keep you and sort of leverage your skills and strength while you're there. And they're kind of more prepared instead of just suddenly going, hey, all right, I heard Jared just had started his own agency and he's leaving. You know, like they, more more people are really embracing the fact that the best thing you can do for your staff is to make them successful in life, not just in their job. Yeah, I, I would agree. Unfortunately, I don't think every business agrees with that. So some people <laughs> will be in that position. Other people, uh, you know, unfortunately, there are some people that go, oh, you're thinking about doing your own thing. Okay, well, you're fired and we'll just find somebody else. And, you know, depending on what state you're in, sometimes they're, you know, they can just fire you for for no grounds just because, you know, you said that other other states do have laws against that. Yeah. Uh, but for, for some people, it'll be easy for other people. Unfortunately, they're in a much uh, more difficult uh, position and it might be, where what they have to do is, okay, great, I'm putting in you know, 100 hours a week because I need to make sure this other thing is sustainable while also making sure it doesn't impact my job because I know as soon as they think something is up, you know, they're going to be hiring my replacement. Yeah, I guess it's, uh, it is, if I think of the captive audience, I'm probably calling on a select group of people who have been successful in it. And there's, there's actually probably a lot of pe- folks who don't have that opportunity. But opportunity being created is much more self-directed and like you at 14 years old you were suddenly on a different path than most people at 14 years old what 
And I bet that's actually not the start. <laughs> I'm betting there was a lot of entrepreneurial spirit that uh, you you probably were heading into preschool and, and thinking about selling the other kids some good lunches. Uh, there's there's got to be. You're not let's, really wrong. <laughs> so going to your your origins, Jared, what what got you started on the entrepreneurial path? Yeah, so I think some of it was I was just born that way. Uh, to be completely honest, there was I'm, I'm not intelligent enough to talk about this in detail, but I was just learning about how um, just basically uh, scientifically how chromosomes work and how like 99.9% of us is all exactly the same, but that 0.1% of us is designated by birth and some of that makes us less prone to being injured in accidents or uh, more prone to being better at sports or whatever it may be. And so I think I was just programmed in a way that I was just always fascinated by business and management and making money where uh, I've always been a big gamer, but some of the games that I enjoyed the most were around resource management or tycoon business games, like the old flash games I used to play all the time. And uh, I was always interested in wanting to work in some weird way where I, when I was in, I believe it was fifth grade, I was allowed to watch a lot of movie movies that people my age generally weren't allowed to watch. So I was watching a lot of like older horror movies with my dad. So like the old child's play movies, uh, Cube, Saw, I was really big into Saw at the time, uh, you know, a bunch of other movies like that. And so what I would do is I would go into the school library and I would basically just copy the plot of the movie into one or two pages but have the setting be the school and have everybody who died be my friends and everybody wanted to know how they died so i would get paid a dollar for every copy of the story that i gave them and it would take like an hour maybe two to turn this out there was no story building it was just okay great we're at the school we're in this classroom this person died because of that whatever it may be and it was just the same exact deaths as in the movie as i could remember it and i just did that and then on the way home from school every day I would go in and to the corner store and I would just buy a Slim Jim for a dollar. And then my mom was like, where is he getting this money? Because we don't pay an allowance. <laughs> so, and I think at one point she was like, you know, are you selling drugs or something? Which we weren't in an area that, that would really happen. So it's kind of funny. But yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of just kind of had that uh, kind of knack. And I was always interested in it for some weird way. I guess the more and more I talk to folks too, and you hear this, it's not often necessarily the business itself like people are not born to be business people but they're born creative and they're able to use that creativity towards things i shared a great quote it was, it was from uh jordan peterson yeah love him or hate him people are, are on either side of that but what he did say is that creative people tend to create a lot of wealth but rarely for themselves and it's it was a funny thing to hear and like it's true because i think of a lot of people that they would go to a job and they would get a great job and people love them and they they do you know amazing creative things but they lack that next ability to kind of take it to doing it on their own and kind of owning their outcome and that's why i loved your your origin story is pretty amazing because that then sort of gets amplified as you go and you take on you see upwork and you don't just see it as a way to get a salary. You probably went into it seeing an amplification opportunity, much more than just a, I can get X number of hours of work done. You were probably immediately thinking like, do, 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 do. How can I get five hours of work done in one hour? You know, can I get seven clients at the same time? That creative mind, then the, the sort of tycoon lifestyle 
comes together in, in a really, really beautiful way. Is there anything else do you think, Jared, um, that kind of prepared you for that? So for me, a lot of it is just you know, learning a lot. I mean, other things that I did across the time was I also signed up to Craigslist and I was doing gig work on Craigslist. And so I was meeting strangers at like 14, 15, sometimes going into their house. And <laughs> there were literally times where I was getting uh, more often than not, we would agree on payment, but people wouldn't pay is like, okay, great. Here's my business idea. Come into my house and like hear it out and like pick it apart. Or if someone needed a math tutor, I guess I'm a math tutor. If someone needed a writer, you know, I just happen to know English so I can, you know, put some words on paper for you, uh, whatever it may be. So I just had that sort of knack, but I wouldn't say I was necessarily skilled nor intentional with a lot of it. Uh, I think honestly, a lot of it was just, um, luck in the way of probability where luck isn't necessarily random chance, but it's just statistics. If you roll the die, you know, six times statistically, you're probably going to hit six, you know, at least once, you know, maybe you need to roll it 10 times, just, you know, whatever it may be. So it's just taking those opportunities. And I think over time I started to realize uh, what I had, which was that, you know, when I, when I got on Upwork, it was because I was just frustrated with my job. I started trying to work for $20 an hour. Nobody hired me. I lowered it to 10. Nobody hired me. I lowered it to five. I started to get hired. Once I got that, I moved it up a little bit on the platform. I was like, okay, great. Uh, now I have a thing or two. What if I add this to a portfolio and I try to go get a job somewhere else? Okay, great. No one else wants to hire me. Uh, maybe I'll look at this Upwork thing a little bit more seriously. And then, oh, wow, this can actually be something. So a lot of it was kind of uh, stumbling into it that, you know, I could make it sound like I knew exactly what I was doing, but I honestly uh, you know, didn't. But what I have always done is you know, absorbed knowledge like a sponge. And when I got into uh, you know, SEO, which was kind of what cemented me within the marketing world for sure, was I created a custom RSS feed uh, for like two, three dozen different websites. And I read every new article that came out over you know a weekly period. I did it once a week. But I would also go back retrospectively and over time, read back about everything that happened over the course of about two years. And I would join all the forums and I would get really engrossed with it. So what I didn't have uh, naturally, I would try to learn from, from other people by just absorb, absorbing a, a disgusting amount of content. Yes. Yeah, I could ask you the question. I remember getting asked this one time by somebody and they... They looked as I did a lot of weird, like, you know, I'm always looking for things. I'm always doing extra stuff. And it's partly like, I, I really respect your approach. This like, what can I do to learn, to be better at this, to learn more about it, learn the background to it. And I was always sort of just enthralled by the idea of not just knowing something, but knowing how it worked and it can go into everything. I used to take stuff apart all the time. And I remember one time a friend of mine, he asked me, he says, what would you do if you were suddenly broke and homeless? Like, just like tomorrow, something happens and that's it. You lose your apartment. You're out on the street. What do you do? And like immediately I think, okay, well, I live, I, I was in Toronto at the time. I'm like, I can get to, I'm not far. I can actually run or I can bike down to the Eaton Center. There's buskers there. Uh, I want to have a guitar, but I mean, if I spend the day, I actually know a few things that I could do and, and I, I got to make enough money. There's a coffee time, I know it's open 24 hours and they're okay with people staying there overnight. I could probably, and like, I just kind of went through this whole scene of like, I would do that. And then I know this place that does secondhand guitars. If I have to, I can just make enough to rent it, whatever. And I could, and in the, in the end he goes, and that's why you won't be homeless tomorrow. Because the moment you were thinking about it, you weren't thinking shelter. You weren't thinking, oh goodness, what am I going to do? you immediately go into response mode of like, 
let's start taking action. Let's start thinking about things we can do. And that's why I guess I'm, I'm, I really, really dig your personality and your approach to stuff because I think more people, it's in them, but maybe they haven't unlocked. And it doesn't have to be like big, but like there's introducing adversity, almost like an immunization, you know, is something that I think everybody needs. We have this problem that people don't prepare for it. But it seems to me like you are automatic that you just think like, okay, what if it all went away right now? I, I had to start again right now. I bet in five minutes you'd be having a pretty solid plan. Yeah, I mean, I, I could probably have one right now. Personally, what I would do is I would uh, probably go down to the local library, get a library card, then I have access to the computer there for, I believe, an hour or two at a time, unless they changed it since the last time I was there. I'd probably go back on the site like, Upwork or similar or Fiverr and you know over one to two hours a day or whenever I can, I can get access to that start working on that find any sort of job that pays anything just so I have some amount of money so I don't you know, die from hunger or thirst uh, and then at the same time while trying to find another place in which I can do uh, either overnight work or some sort of office work where I don't have a lot of supervision so what I would do is then so for example let's say a, a hotel uh clerk overnight like it's a desk job where not a whole lot of people are coming in not a whole lot of supervision maybe one or two other people there i'd find a way to make enough to have a laptop and so i'd be working on both at the same time building up the income on the other side of things to eventually make that job redundant because it would be replacing the income so i'd essentially find a way to work on both at the same time while building up uh, something where i'm more comfortable with which would be the online stuff but have something a little bit more stable to make sure that uh, however long it takes on one front, it'll be, I'll be at least somewhat fine. It's, uh, and, and that really is amazing to hear that just that thought process that goes in. Another thing that I really like, and let's dig into Comet Fuel a bit. One of my favorite things about meeting and, and reading about an organization and about a team or a person, anybody, whether it's just the fact that when you go there and you say, this is what we do. Okay, of course, everybody has that, right? This is the stuff that I'd love for you to pay me to do. In effect, that's what a lot of businesses have. But you're a rare treat in that one of the most prominent things you have is uh, this is what we don't do. And immediately going to the market saying, this is literally my niche and this is where we're going to be fantastic for you. So it gets that out of the way. It probably saves a ton of, oh, Jared, hey, now that we got you on the phone, you know, can you do this? Can you do this? Like, I like that approach. So let's talk about what Comet Fuel does and and let's dabble on that, that what we don't do. I love that you've given good edges. Yeah, sure. So in a nutshell, Comet Fuel is a boutique strategy first agency that helps exceptional businesses fuel growth through Google Ads, PPC, as well as SEO. And I at least like to say without the typical agency BS. Uh, in terms of what we don't do, uh, it's something that I see as a bit of a moving target because it's something that we find out more and more over time. But it's... It's very hard for the average consumer being a business owner or marketing professional to look at an agency and know how are they different from everybody else? Because a lot of the stuff sounds the same, especially if you don't have hands-on experience with that particular marketing channel. And so I've tried to, over time, uh, understand what the greatest advantages as well as the greatest pitfalls are. And some of them are much harder to put into words than others. 
but I do try to uh, you know make it as clear as possible. And whether that's through content or whether that's through you know a discovery call or through the proposal process of you know our style of of doing things it's one of the reasons why i like going on podcasts so much is because when people want to potentially work from with us i don't say go look at our case studies go look at our testimonials go look at whatever i say you know go listen to a couple podcasts because that'll give you a much greater understanding you'll be able to hear me you'll be able to see how how we approach things you know do i talk technical am i talking about a bunch of stuff that you go oh that's all really basic you know we're way above that okay mate maybe we're not at the level that you know you need maybe you need to go work with someone that's you know at a higher level or maybe you look at you hear it and you say and you say, wow, I didn't understand any of that. You know, what are these metrics? What are these KPIs? You know, what does that strategy even entail that, you know, that I can't even imagine how much that cost it. Okay. Then maybe we're you know, at a level that you're not uh, ready for. It wouldn't make sense for you to be for. So I try to uh, push the content a lot because, you know, no matter how much time and energy I put into what goes on the website, it still is, uh, you know, as much as it's informative, there's still always going to be some uh, effect of like, Hey, we're pushing you to, you know, sign up to a discovery call. Whereas on the content, it's much softer and it's, Hey, listen, if you go, Hey, I don't like that guy. Okay, great. Then don't reach out. And we've just saved each other a bunch of time and money. I love that. And it's funny too, like a website is always, it's like a resume, you know, like you want, you want to put everything in there, but then you realize you can't cause it won't get read. And then you, you it's always this really intricate sort of balance of detail and specificity to like making sure people know you're you're not just kind of one thing but another area as well if if we could talk about this is who's your who's your ideal customer like a somebody that that's thinking all right i'm digging jared's story i'm digging you know your approach am i a good customer or a good client for for you and the comet fuel team yeah, so this is something that's been a very interesting uh, point of ours, which is that when I initially started, uh, everyone talks about niche usually in terms of here's the industry that we work with or here's the one service that we provide. So they're either the they're the SEO company for you know whoever or they're the uh, dental marketing company or the, they're the dental SEO company, et cetera. And that's how we kind of started off because my background was in law firm marketing. So I started off very specific with law firms at the time, contractors, and then it kind of expanded to service-based businesses. And then over time, what happened is we're running into more and more instances where it's like, okay, great. Here's a national company, which now means we can't even work in this industry anymore because we're working with one <laughs> business. So it doesn't really necessarily make sense. And I would rather, you know, in my opinion, work with one business that's like, okay, great. Here's, you know, a $50,000 a month budget. We can be really aggressive. We can, you know, we don't have to worry about, oh, this content writer costs 12 cents per word instead of 10 cents per word. Is that going to work? We, and we have much more uh, ability and scale for growth compared to working with maybe, uh, you know, 50 companies on the same industry at two grand a month, which would be double the amount. Uh, but the progress is much slower and the, the retention is lower, et cetera. So over time, what I started to look for was a, uh, more of a personality. And what I forgot to just mention is also, there's a big difference between a small company in the industry and a large company in the industry in which they're, they, they can't really be compared. So, uh, what we tend to look for is businesses who are usually at the seven figure or eight figure mark, or if they're below that. Usually they tend to be high margin, which their profit margins may be roughly the same as companies that, uh, that do more money there. Uh, and usually they have a intermediate understanding of, of marketing and both business so that 
if we go into a situation and we're looking at uh, the lifetime value of a customer and the maybe where the lifetime value is $100 and it's $10 a month, but it's going to cost us $20 to acquire a customer, then we start to have discussions around gross margins, net margins, operating margins, burn rates for, you know, because if you're going in, if you're taking a loss at first, how long are you actually going? Do you have the cash flow to support this loss for how long? If it takes six months to be profitable in this campaign, can you actually afford that? Or did you just look at the lifetime number values and go, yep, it'll work out eventually? <laughs> and so if we're able to have these discussions, it's an indication that we'll be able to uh, move forward while also considering all aspects of the business, which is something that we like to do because with my background of you know, marketing, business, and finance, I tend to bring that to the table. And us being a boutique company, we only work with about 25 companies at a time. And so I'm still able to be very heavily involved, which I enjoy with the actual client. So we can get on a call and we can talk at a very high level about you know, the business as a whole, the numbers, et cetera. And so if we can't have those conversations, it tends not to really work out. So uh, I've been making uh, strides to be able to explain this in a much simpler way, but a lot of it comes down to, I can usually jump on a call with somebody and then understand through their the mannerisms in their voice and through the way that they talk about their own business, uh, whether or not they're somebody who uh, is what we're looking for. And what we also try to look for is just companies that we actually want to see succeed, which is something I'm pretty big on. If I don't believe in the company, if I wouldn't be a customer of that company, or if I'm not already a customer of the company, because sometimes that happens, then then it's just not somebody that that I want to work with, you know, regardless of what their budget is. Yeah, this is a. Uh, it's amazing in that discovery call when you really do walk through that and you <clears throat> get them to explore. Yeah, what's your customer acquisition cost? What's your current strategy? Because that's often the biggest thing is just knowing where they are on their journey of, you know, taking on, you know, and you get to very quickly ask critical questions that they won't ask themselves of like, is this, is this an area that is new to you? You know, are you comfortable? Do you feel like your, your YouTube spend is working out? Like, do you really need to go to seven networks? Do you really think you need TikTok right now? Like you can ask questions like that, that they are afraid to bring to their own team because they're just sort of looking out at the world going, I need ev to unlock every channel I can. Meanwhile, it's actually counter because they may be spending so much in each channel that that CAC goes hugely high. And then long-term value of, and, and customer long-term value is sometimes not even measured correctly. It's uh it's really cool when you can just come in and say, all right, where are you at right now? Where do you need to be? What do you consider success at the end of this discussion today? And it's, yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple of like really core questions that really break it down. And one of those, when you were mentioning like how many marketing channels they're on and whatnot, uh, a really nice question I like to ask is how are, how are you tracking omnichannel? Uh, now, a lot of that is honestly built into Google Analytics, depending on it, it, where it can be very simple as, okay, great, somebody clicked onto a Google ad, converted on Facebook, and now, you know, depending on what sort of attribution model you're using, will depend on how much money actually gets attributed to each channel. If, if I'm talking to someone that doesn't understand that, then that can sometimes be a really big uh, pain when we're running through a Google campaign and it's, hey, uh, why you know, why is Google only made, you know, $20,000 in revenue this month? 
and we're looking at it and we were like, yes, but your Facebook remarketing has recaptured the people from Google, which we can see through analytics or an omni-channel tool if one is being used. And if you look at it from a first-click perspective, Google Ads has brought in 80,000 in revenue. If you look at it from a last-click perspective, it's brought in 20. If we look at it from this perspective, et cetera, and then you know, do you do you understand how to uh, really model that and understand that and look at that and allocate budget accordingly? Or is it just very binary with what I see in the Google Analytics dashboard uh, or the Google Ads dashboard? Is it, and, you know, okay, great, let's turn it off and then not realize that how it's going to affect the Facebook ads because the Facebook ads were making, you know, $60,000 a month in revenue because they were remarketing to the targeted Google audience. Is there a... Is there a common set of problems that maybe we can sort of unpack for people? Because they're probably, if they look into their own current strategy or their current tactical approach to stuff, there's probably some really fast things that we could, I'd love, I'd love to light people up and have them go like, oh man, <laughs> I'm totally doing that. <laughs> yeah, so what's, what's kind of funny is uh, a lot of what I see Usually I can go into almost any account of any size of business, of any marketing sophistication, and usually find one or two basic things that aren't aligned. Not because people aren't smart enough to notice that, but usually when you become used to something, you stop reanalyzing every little thing. But when somebody new comes into it, they have to look at everything. They need that full perspective of everything that's going on. So there's a couple of things that, I, that I'll see. One, very basic conversion tracking needs to be set up. I can't... Within Google Ads, a lot of people that are experienced marketers will have at least the basic setup, but SEO isn't always tracked. Those goals aren't always pulled back into Google Analytics where you have a central dashboard tracking everything from every channel together. Also tracking various types of engagement. Okay, great. You're an e-commerce store. Somebody bought. Well, what happened in that process? How many people that clicked on this keyword versus that keyword added the product to the cart versus made it to partly through the checkout page or whatever it may be? So you can see where that breakdown is and not just go, uh, okay, people from uh, this keyword convert at 2%, people from this keyword convert at 1%, let's turn off the 1% and spend more on the 2%, where maybe you realize that the people that convert at 1%, uh, a lot of them make it to the final checkout page and then they stop because it turns out the coupon code that you're promoting through your ads was no longer valid about three months ago. People are really frustrated because they enjoyed the deal. And that's why they're not converting because they feel as though that they've been cheated. When they expected something to be $70, they get it to the end of the cart and says, hey, coupon code invalid, please pay us $100 or whatever it may be. So really tracking everything end to end if possible uh, gives you much more clear perspective as to where the breakdown is and not just who, where do we make money, where do we not. For lead generation businesses, uh, what you're able to do for most I would assume most marketing channels, I can't say for all, but I know for Google ads, you can, uh, for SEO, it's a lot more difficult. It's just how search works. But for Google ads, uh, you can pull in uh, af an offline conversion and you can pull that, tie that into the, your actual funnel stages as well. And so what you're able to see is not just who filled out our lead capture form, whether you're a software company going after a demo or whether you're a service-based business going after you know some sort of consultation or whatever it may be, is what percentage of these people actually showed up to the demo or consultation? What percentage of them actually made it to the next step, the next step, and then paid us, whatever your funnel looks like? What you're able to do is use a hidden form field to capture uh, URL parameters such as the GCLID, which is the unique tracking code that Google uses. And then when someone makes it through your funnel, export that in the, into a CSV 
upload it back into Google Ads, and then retroactively you can go, which of these clicks actually led to customers and go, okay, great, keyword A converts at 12%, but only 1% of people actually convert into customers, where keyword B converts at 2%, but 50% of people convert into customers. Clearly one of those is way better, but you would only know that by pulling everything in end to end. Uh, so that's one thing on conversion tracking. The other thing that I'll see a lot, uh, which I find annoying as a consumer, and and so is one of the biggest things I look for for anybody that is e-commerce or uh, software-related or uh, online education-related specifically, is stop remarketing to existing customers, especially if you're on some sort of retainer like a software. I can't tell you how many times I am uh, using a software and then I get an ad to sign up for a free trial of things, something that I already pay monthly or yearly for. Very easily, even if it's on the back end, whatever page people log into, if they make it to the back end, have your Google Analytics tag on there, same property, and then just add that as an exclusion to your remarketing list. So old people who have logged in cannot are no longer on that remarketing list. If it's e-commerce, and you sell a product, let's just, depending on what you sell, this it can be too complicated to do this if you sell a bunch of stuff that people might buy again the next day. Or like if you're Amazon, it's impossible to do it. But if you sell a couple of products, let's say you sell uh, I don't know, shampoo. How long does it take your average user to go through a bottle of shampoo? Let's say it takes two weeks. Okay, great. If someone buys today, don't remarket them for two weeks. If you want to remarket to people over the course of two weeks, include only people who have been to the website who have not purchased within the past two weeks. After that point, you can remarket to people to get them to try it by again. Uh, simple things like this can save a lot of uh, time and money. It can save money on clicks. It can save money on, especially if you're doing any CPM bidding where you're just paying per impression, it can save a lot of money there. But it just makes the data uh, a lot cleaner, and I would say those are some of the some of the easiest things to fix that I also see in like ninety percent of the accounts that I look at. This is a uh, I'm with you on this pet peeve because uh, every once in a while I'll buy something, and it's let's say a very specific product from a very specific company that is not a repeat buy, and there's no upsells beyond it. Like it says. I did it. I literally am the perfect conversion. And then for two days after I'm getting ads for the thing that I literally bought. And like, it just blows my mind. I'm like, sometimes I just, because I want to punish them a little bit more, I click the ad just for, I'm like, I'm going to spend your CPMs then. <laughs> if you are going to keep blowing up your own marketing budget because you failed to acknowledge that I completed the conversion. It's, uh, but it is easy, I guess, for folks to just think of it as like, we're going to remarket, you know, and retarget, like, that's not the goal. It's like the quality of the retargeting, because that every, every penny spent becomes dollars and then hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars when you get to any kind of scale. How often... You know, when you go to a company and they're ready to engage you, Jared, how often do you go in and like you said, they're they think they're doing okay, but they're not questioning stuff like that. I, I would imagine it's a pretty it's an easy hit. And people probably appreciate because they don't have time to go get really good at this stuff. They're just like, I've got omni-channel, you know, marketing I'm doing. I can't know every single one through and through. Yeah, I mean, 
I would say it's probably 95% of the time. And, you know, we probably do it too. I'm sure there's tons of stuff within our processes that we just haven't noticed that could be done better just because we're used to the same thing and doing it the same way every time that it's kind of, uh, it's become automatic. And so a lot of it, in my opinion, is just having a new perspective kind of come in and take a look at things and go, uh, well, why is this like this? And someone go, oh, well, I never actually thought about that. You know, we set up the remarketing list because we needed to get it done. So we just set it up and ran with it and we saw that it was working. And so nothing in our tool said that, hey, this remarketing list is performing under average. So we need to take a closer look at it. So, you know, it just kind of sat there. But uh, one of the one of the good things of the economies of scale is that, you know, if you're spending you know a million dollars a month in ads, a 1%, uh, you know, getting the same result while being able to lower your budget by 1% is quite significant. You know, that's, you know, that's an additional employee that you could have hired by somebody potentially spending five minutes looking at, looking at your account. You know, I was just looking at an account the other day that spends about $10,000 a day or so. Their goal is to kind of scale that to about 10 times what they're doing now throughout Omnichannel, throughout Google Ads, probably be about tripling what they're doing now. And that was one of the things that I saw. I was like, wow, you have such really sophisticated campaigns. There's so much going on here. A lot of this is uh, is functioning incredibly well to the point where I'm kind of jealous of it because I know internally that's not their background. And I'm like, how are you doing this well in some of these areas without a background in this? Like, this is really impressive. And then I go through and like, oh, here's a really easy way that you can improve everything that you're doing, probably across not just one channel, but you probably use these same lists across all these other channels because the lists were created through Google Analytics, pulled in through Google ads. And I have to assume most channels would also integrate with Google analytics pretty well. And so you're probably uh, using the same uh, remarketing tactics. And if it doesn't pull in, you're probably making them the same way. So that one observation could have saved a whole bunch of money across every channel, just kind of regardless of, um, you know, what's just being seen in ads. So it, it's quite common. And I don't think it's necessarily that, uh, you know, someone intentionally overlooks something. It's just, it becomes so automatic to see the same thing every day that, that a new perspective uh, you know, is going to question things, is going to take a little bit of closer look because that understanding of how everything is set up, how everything works has to be built from the ground up. Yeah, I think the new phrase we could always use is there's no greater lie than one backed by Google Analytics. If you dig deep enough into those dashboards, you can have you can put together some charts that always go up and to the right. But like you said, it's the optimizations that, especially at scale, they can really, really have a material effect, first of all, on just the cost, but just the efficiency, right? Conversion rates. And that's one thing that people often forget is when we talk about conversion rates, we're talking about one to 4%. So if you're spending money on 96% that aren't going to convert, that 4% has got to count. And if you, if you have to scale to continue to reach that four to five, like we don't get, there's no way to get to 20% conversion you just have to get really good at optimizing to scale to get to 4% with a larger push, right? Within certain industries, and it also depends on what your offer is. For for e-commerce, direct transaction, yes. For uh, for service-based or lead generation, generally looking for 10 to 20%. You know, Some of the accounts that we're working on will push 50, 60% just because it's been refined over such a long period of time. But what what you're looking for is not only a, a conversion rate, but um, anything that's a percentage based 
is going to always be a very misleading metric. Anything that is an average or a percentage uh, needs way more context for it to be valuable to you. Uh, because we're not just looking for conversions, we're looking for quality conversions. Now, obviously, with something like e-commerce, you're going to be able to see what the revenue was made or if revenue wasn't made. For lead gen, this is one of the big pitfalls is, okay, great, a conversion happened. Let's spend more money here uh, because that's not necessarily a quality conversion or one that's going to be more profitable. And so looking at the the bigger picture in those instances, such as, uh, okay, great, it's a uh, it's a you know, it's a construction business, and they have a higher conversion rate in this area. But that area is uh, 50 miles north, and so what happens is they're going to have to increase their bids to account for travel time. They're going to be able to do less jobs in a day because they're further away from where most of their jobs are. And not only that, but they're probably going to be bidding higher than their local competitors who don't have to factor in the travel cost nearly as much, and so they're less likely to win those jobs in the first place. So even though location B has a uh, 15% higher uh, cost per conversion, it's actually more profitable to spend more money here because the bids are going to be lower. It's going to be faster and easier for them to get there. So it's less resources on their end. They're more well-known in this local area because this is where their corporate headquarters are, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If anybody doesn't hire you on the spot from just your explanation of that, then they're really not thinking about their priorities, right? Because <laughs> I... I Again, I love this, the, the thought process that goes into the approach is, is a really important. I work with a lot of folks that you, know, you can't see outside of just, I just need to create a chart so that every Monday I've got something that goes up and to the right. And we fall victim to that, that, that just as a, that becomes the thing you measure. And it's really, really tough because like having gone through work with ads and I've used uh, Facebook ads as my like primary channel for my, my coffee company. And it, if you don't measure it right, I'll put out, I'll say, I'll spend $400 on an ad. Like just very simple, small thing. Like first thing I'm like, I spent my first 400 bucks on an ad and conversion rate was really cool. And I made all of my money back with no problem at all. And then you go and you toss another 400 bucks at that with the same ad and then you get like 3% conversion. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So if I were to look at one versus the other, it's not going to be a good sampling. If I take the average, it's really going to water it all down. But then, like you said, what if I took the existing customers and then I did stuff like retargeting or, or sorry, like close to the cart customers and I did retargeting, and then I see that. And then customers that buy, I send a follow-up three weeks later because I know they're going to run out of coffee and give them a coupon that shows up in their mailbox three weeks after they buy. And the conversion rates are incredible. You know, so there's like that approach. Now that I tested it, I'm like, okay, this is where I know I can, if I can get them to the the checkout and get them to click buy, I know I've got good follow on and I've got good other things. And the, there's physical retargeting. Actually, that's, I'd actually love to get your thoughts on that one. When does physical remarketing and retargeting come into play with companies? So uh, to what extent, if you can define that a little bit more? Yeah, like, so like the, sort of the, the postcards, uh, like the an actual, like a real, a real material follow-up because 
I get it. I actually had a recent guest on. She was fantastic, uh, Michelle Seiler Tucker, <clears throat> and I have her. I actually have her book on my on my uh, shelf here because I just read it. And she sends uh, like a postcard, a handwritten postcard, and I'm like, "This is awesome." Even if somebody gets a service to write the handwritten postcard, it really, really does like it does incent me to then go back and double check her website and find it when the next book is coming out or find it when the next thing is coming. Where do you get involved in that? I guess first I should ask Jared and, and where do you find that being effective? Yeah. So uh, difficult question to answer for the, do we get involved? Because I try to be very specific about what we do, but at the same time, try to be as much of an asset as possible with clients. So in terms of, do we provide that service? No, but we consult with clients about a tons, ton of different marketing channels and give our feedback uh, where we can. So for something like that, uh, I would look at it from a couple of different perspectives. One would be retention because there are some things that you just can't measure and those tend to be some of the most profitable things out there. The reason being is that everybody is way too focused on being data-driven to the point where it's causing a lot more harm than good. And so in my opinion, it's much better to be uh, data informed, which is more complicated. There's more pushback. It's harder to prove things. But uh, in terms of being people, uh, I think it uh, performs better. Now, on, on the matter of being more data informed, I know that if I take a more personalized approach, it's going to drive a better experience, even if people don't outright tell me that. Uh, for example, we were working with a company that that we're no longer working with and they were an e-commerce company and we kept finding uh, various small issues sometimes major issues with various aspects of of the business that we were genuinely uh, concerned about and so uh, and and i'll do this for some clients but i never tell them that i do uh, but so i went to their site and i ordered one of their products so now i'm on their actual post-sale process and i get to see everything end to end so the uh, the email marketing, uh, very, very generic. And this was a product that is something where there's not a whole lot of, a lot of the people buying are not generally informed about it and are kind of hesitant to try it. And so there wasn't a whole lot of like education happening in the email uh, or anything special for being a new customer. Uh, the SMX, the SMS me uh, messaging was very boring and kind of generic. So as a new customer, I didn't feel uh, any different than somebody who has you know, bought a thousand times before. I didn't feel as though there's anything really standing out about this. And then I got the package in the mail and it was a general like flat rate envelope. I completely forgot what I ordered at the time. So I was like, what is this? I opened it up and the products inside, there's, there's no box, there's no branding. Uh, there's not only that, but the way that the product was described on the website didn't really seem to be aligned with what I got. And also uh, the one that I ordered, it was the wrong kind, but with the right label on it. And so from end to end, it was just a completely poor experience where, you know, it's one of the big things as to why we no longer work with them is that I would never buy from that company again. It was just such a poor experience. And they're not necessarily going to get that feedback from people because, you know, it's just easy to go, okay, great. That's 20 bucks, whatever. That was a waste. I just want to order from here again. And so, uh, you know, just by sending something like a handmade postcard, you won't necessarily be able to track like, oh, like people are, I mean, you can put tracking codes like, oh, they're ordering more, but uh, maybe you A, B test, like do people order more if we send this versus we don't, and that's all fine. But I know that long-term, way past being able to easily measure this over the course of several years, people are probably more likely to tell their friends about me uh, if I'm sending out handwritten postcards. Me people are more likely to probably 
uh, order for longer periods of time, uh, which is harder to track, especially when you have so many different touch points happening and so many different, oh, was it the emails? Was it the events that we're doing? Was it the TV, et cetera, et cetera. And so for something like that, I would know it would probably work out in the long term. Uh, but for uh, for smaller businesses that have to be much more careful with every dollar that they spend, it's something that would be very cost conscientious about because it's something that maybe it helps over the course of three to five years a lot, uh, but maybe it slightly increases orders over the course of like a year or two where it's very hard to measure what's happening. So I'd be a little bit careful there. But I always like to see how things can be tracked as much as possible, such as, okay, great, uh, you know, we can track from a data perspective when was this sent out roughly when they would have received it and when was their next order compared to people that haven't sent this out you can if you have enough customers you can do an actual split test uh, make sure you're actually running that test properly and you actually you have enough that you can actually get a real sample size otherwise uh, it's just gonna be data that doesn't really mean anything but also if you you know, put a special coupon code maybe on that put a special maybe a website link so you can track how many people actually visit from that website or if you have a customer support number where it's like oh like thanks so much for your first ever order we'd love if you would call us directly and you know even if we're not available leave us a voicemail let us know what you felt about it uh, or here's an email that you can respond to etc how many people actually contact that specific email or call that specific number you know call real will cost you an extra dollar a month or twilio if you have the more technical background background it'll be a lot cheaper um so i think it's a good idea uh, I think it's one of those things that's really difficult to track in the long term. And because of that, it's probably incredibly profitable. But for a lot of businesses, that's where it also becomes very scary when they go, okay, great, this is our very limited marketing budget. How do I explain to myself or how do I explain to my boss that this is working? Uh, you know, Sometimes you can't. And a lot of that comes down to the data informed side of things, which is that uh, reasonably, you know, of the 10 different coffee brands that maybe they've tried within the past year, how many of them have personally reached out to them? right none <laughs> so yeah it's <laughs> yeah, funny and it becomes a thing of you know measuring measure what matters and and also like you said there's a there's the personalization there's the period of time over which it would be effective i mean if you just if i just need to get people and get that first customers and then work on the customer delight experience from that point forward there's no point in like i said thinking about how do I retain an 18 month customer when I have zero customers, you know, or 20 customers? I'm like, I just need to get to a hundred customers and then we can begin to backfill and do some of that post sales delighting uh, type of thing. And again, using data and anecdotal information to be able to inform that it's, like I said, it's data driven is such a, oh, it's just been washed out as a phrase because people say, oh, we're data driven and like, I, I can take any set of data and make it tell the story that I want to, but are you actually merging it with true anecdotal experience? And then, like I said, data informed is, is, is a much better, much better thing. On the Google side of things, and I guess in general, right? So Google's a moving target. Everything is, I mean, we all saw the introduction of the Core Web Vitals in, in around July timeframe that, that kicked in leading up to it. Everybody was freaking out because they're like, I'm going to get, you know, punished for my web speed and it's going to affect my search ranking results. Is this going to affect my SEO and my ability to do, you know, CPMs? The irony was the blog from Google about Core Web Vitals fails Core Web Vitals. Like the actual product blog from Google doesn't pass their own test. So, 
Number one, is it is it real as a worry? And number two, how do you stay on top of things like that? Like I would assume, Jared, that nothing is done in your world. It's we have to keep revisiting. Am I am I right on that assumption? No, you're absolutely correct. So for a little bit of context, in 2018, maybe 2019, don't quote me on that, uh, Google announced, and I believe, again, don't quote me on this, it was the only time they've announced how many updates they've made to their search algorithms over the course of a year. And it was over 3,500 changes over the course of a year. Most of these changes will go completely unnoticed. And if you were to use a rank tracking tool, which if you use it fine, if you don't, it, it, nowadays, it's it's not going to be the end of the world. Uh, but if you look and you see that fluctuation, oh, we go from anywhere from five to three, depending on the day, you're not going to be look at that, be able to look at that normal fluctuation and go, what happened where, oh, maybe that was a Google update. And that's why we're now four more often than we were five. Or maybe it was just that you did something. And then the way that Google's indexes work is that they can come and crawl your website and then they render different parts of the website at different times. It takes anyone with a technical background knows it's much easier to parse HTML than it is JavaScript. It's going to take a lot longer. And with how much code is on websites nowadays, it's going to take Google a long time to understand that. Uh, it just, I mean, long time in terms of Google. I mean, they, bam, they just crawled half the web. <laughs> so, uh, so it, it takes time to do that. And when you look at uh, tiered indexes, it, when you look at ranking and re-ranking, you look at all the sophistication that's built in, it's really hard to understand exactly what every little nuance is and what did or did not affect you. What I've learned over the past 10 years is that there have been very few updates that I have been worried with for the types of uh, businesses that we work with, which is not something that are in very dangerous niches. And what I mean by that is your money, your life type stuff. Like if you're in weight loss, if you're in uh, very, if you're in, um, if you provide a lot of uh, financial information, especially on the more sketchier side of things like uh, crypto, penny stock stuff that tends to be, you know, pump and dumps happen all the time and that kind of stuff. If you're right. uh, a lot of uh, medical advice, things like that are very scrutinized. Those tend to see the biggest fluctuations. Also on the uh, affiliate marketing side of stuff, which you know I have various sites in that, those are always wildly fluctuating. But the average business, I see barely move unless something has been done wrong over a long period of time, in which case then we'll get a little bit nervous where sometimes we'll be working with a client that has done some sketchy stuff in the past for links. And every time that you know there's a core algorithm update, it's like, Will this tank? Who knows? It's possible. You know, stuff that you did years ago can really come back to bite you, which is why I usually recommend people be very careful with SEO much more than any other marketing channel, because literally stuff that you did five, six years ago could come back and punish you, you know, tomorrow. So uh, when it comes to specifically core web vitals, uh, we all know that we need fast websites. Like it's not, it's not rocket science. If your website takes 20 seconds to load, nobody wants to buy from you. Uh, this has been known uh, for years. I think in like 2014 or 2015, a study was done that showed the average person, like 40% of people bounce if your website takes more than three seconds to load on mobile. Page yeah. has been important for UX for a long time. In terms of uh, getting past Google scores, it's something I haven't really worried about too much. Like it's something where it's like, you know, we do want to try as best as possible now that Google has officially made it a ranking factor, is try to be in the, the good zone as much as possible. But also, uh, page speed is a very complex topic where it also depends on the connection that people are using, the browser that they're using, how it's actually being rendered will affect the user apart from how it looks at Google. And there was a point in time where it was just page speed insights. I took a 
flat HTML site that I built that was very clean code that loaded in like 0.2 seconds based on every test you would ever run. If you load it in mobile or your desktop, it would always load instantly. And it had like a 12 out of 100. And then a much slower version of that site, uh, objectively, like you try to visit, it would take about a second, a second and a half to load, would have like an 80. So I focus more, when it comes to speed, I focus much more on the UX side of things than I focus on the Google side of things. And realistically, uh, you know, if, if everybody else in your industry that is also ranking for the same terms as you loads in four seconds and you load in three and Google says that your scores are bad, chances are theirs are worse. Uh, and so in terms of that factor, you're winning, how much of an impact of that factor is, how heavily weighted it is, if any, you know, if you want to dive into the algorithm side of things, it's always a question how much it affects on a ranking versus a re-ranking basis. Uh, you know, there's always questions in there. Uh, maybe there's a little bit more detail in, in the patents, or if you look at, you know, Stanford has a lot of documents that'll detail how the, how algorithms can work just because that's how they can work doesn't mean they're necessarily in use but for something like core web vitals specifically it's something i went oh, okay cool that's interesting and then just you know carried on about my day and then look at the scores when they come into search console but aside from that didn't really worry about that the only things that i've really ever have to been worried about with google is when uh, penguin 4.0 came out in 2018 i believe th- that was something that had been anticipated for quite a few years um, and so I was very interested to see what was going to happen with that because Google went from punishing you for bad links to being able to ignore bad links, which uh, made things both more difficult and easier at the same time. Right. And then where I'm much more concerned right now is on the data privacy things. We just saw Facebook get absolutely destroyed with iOS 14, uh, where you might be getting the same result, but now you're only being able to track like 70 or 80% of the conversions. Right. Uh, Google was originally going to get rid of third-party cookies in 2022. They now push that off to mid-2023. And with that, the question is, well, if they don't find out a solution, remarketing is gone uh, because they haven't found a solution for that. Uh, Flock or the Federated Learning of Cohorts is heavily disputed. WordPress is saying they're going to block it by default. And so uh, Google has a lot of of stuff that they need to do where right now there's very little insight as to what the advertising world will look like in terms of digital uh you know come here mid 2023 assuming that the deadline doesn't move again and so that is out of everything that's happened in the past couple years that's the only one that i'm genuinely uh nervous and hesitant about because i think that one's going to be tough for the advertising world but also even tougher for uh the people who are paying advertisers who aren't marketers themselves they don't necessarily have the acumen to understand that you might be getting the same result even though we can only maybe report on 80 to 9 percent of what it was before especially for those accounts that are just barely making it through where they need to be that may now show that they're underperforming uh below their baseline even though that's the same so uh i would so in short core web vitals yeah whatever like it's something uh not really too worried about it uh i'm more concerned about the data privacy changes we're seeing right now yeah, it's amazing that you think about that. When I when I saw what's potentially, you know, it and it could happen both quickly and slowly in weird ways. And Google, you know, if there's legislative stuff that comes down, you know, you could see very rapid, strange changes. Because part of the problem is that they're the effectively the only game in town as far as like you know or the major game in town facebook obviously same story they're they've got a significant presence these are the the champions of ad media you know it used to be the the signs you'd drive by on the highway and they're that is long gone now right no one does tv advertising the same way anymore 
if we see this, you know, some shift, the trick is what's on the other side of it. When we went from print media to television media and radio media, like you got what the change would mean. You got how you could measure it. This is the first potential change where we have no idea what's on the other side of it. We have, we are almost taking it back to the billboards where you're just saying, Hey, I see 20,000 cars drive by this an hour. I can't tell you what the cars are, what the demographics are, the people driving them. But I can tell you that 20,000 cars drive by it every hour. That's all. <laughs> We're going to be that level of lack of knowledge on the digital front, which is kind of weird. Yeah, there are, there's a big consumer movement towards massively limiting data to the point where uh, some of the more, uh, I would say, extreme groups want there essentially to be uh, no data, no tracking. Like, you know, you shouldn't know who does or does not you know, purchase from your own website, even first party tracking, let alone, you know, third party tracking. And what makes this, uh, you know, quite challenging is things like uh, view through and click through conversions, in which case you might find that a, that a YouTube video that you're running uh, doesn't convince anybody to convert. But what it does do is help educate people of your brand. And when you look over a you know 90 day period, you can see that people who uh, viewed this ad ended up uh, more likely in a, a different segment that you're tracking, or they uh, more more likely to engage with your uh, ads on another platform. And then without that, you might just assume, okay, well, YouTube doesn't work, so let me turn that off completely. So on one hand, uh, what allegedly, by the way, just to, you know, before I don't want to sound alarm bells for everybody, but allegedly from the last I've heard, Google saying that uh, Flock would have about ninety-five percent of the same performance as as of right now. But what people are nervous about is that you don't really know until you know. And if you right. were Google and you knew it was only going to be 60% the same, you definitely wouldn't say that because then everybody would freak out. And Google makes about $140 billion a year from just ads, I believe. Uh, so there's there's a very heavy incentive for them to get this as right as possible. Uh, but uh, what we might see is that uh, ad costs may actually go down because the tracking is less there. So people are going to be less likely to spend as much money. And so that's also the potential counterpoint to that, which is that, okay, great. Well, if we can only track things 90% as well, we want to only spend 90% as much as we were per click or per impression as we were beforehand to kind of try and even that out. So uh, I, th I think it's a, it's a bit of a, a good time. A lot of, some of the changes are needed. Uh, you know, data is kind of like the wild, wild west right now, but right. I am fearful that we might go from very far in one direction, which is, you know, collect any sort of data you want. Like no one's really going to know how it works unless they really dive into it. No one knows what you're collecting. Some of it's pretty shady. Like, oh, uh, like is my smart home device like listening to me right now and transmitting that to a human's reading that as potentially personal information, et cetera, et cetera, to uh, the other side of things, which may be very little data, in which case, honestly, it'll hurt the smaller businesses out of, out of anyone. Uh, you know, Target can afford to spend $100 million on an advertising campaign and go, you know what, people know our name, they're going to buy from us. A small company that no one's ever heard of uh, needs a lot more data in order to know that this is actually working for them to use that money effectively. So in my opinion, it's going to hurt the smaller businesses and the smaller advertisers uh, more, unfortunately, which is something that I don't see being talked about a whole lot. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Yeah. And it's funny, like the, the assistants listening to us, you know, people often, I want to do just a podcast with nothing, just every like 10 minutes, just say Xbox, turn off, you know, Amazon order, <laughs> like you squeeze those things in and it's, that's the stuff that's, that's the stuff that I dislike. I don't mind retargeting for ads. I kind of know what's going on. You know, if I need, I use VPNs for a variety of just like for web testing and for just general safety as I move around in, you know, strange Wi-Fi's, I, I do stuff like that. And I know it will lock down some of that, but I'm, I accept that retargeting is a thing and cookie tracking is a thing and it will occur. I know how the machine works, so I don't, I don't mind. Like I said, I don't like, there's no, no listening assistance in my entire house for a reason. I don't like that part of it, but uh, yeah, I'm with you. This is kind of a wild time that's ahead. And look for folks that are listening now, it reminds you that very few people are going to care as much about this as, as what you and, and, and folks like you are doing, Jared, this is why it's good to reach out to folks that do this, that that's your focus. Cause my internal team, I can't afford to have them care this hard about it. <laughs> like I, I need them to be good at knowing my business and then taking it to, you know, this is why comment feels important. And I think people got to head there. I'll of course have links to, to the website. And people should definitely reach out because this is the time now to leverage this capability. We're still in a very weird spot as far as human movement in the world. So all of the traditional media, all of the traditional approaches, they got wiped off the map 18 months ago and they are not coming back. And this is the digital forefront. We, not, we thought the digital forefront happened already, but this is this is a chance. More people don't have to go back to work. They can start their own side hustle. They can use you and use the techniques that you've got, and they can unlock a really cool new future for themselves and their families and their organizations. I'm excited in a weird way of like how strange it's been because I want to... I want to find the good in all the craziness that's happened and and it's out there it's out there somewhere uh, so i mean obviously i would i would trade every positive you know outcome to not have to have the world go through what we've gone through but it's happened like let's let's try and find something good out of it yeah and i mean luckily what it has done on the the good side is you know as you were mentioning from a technology side it has pushed a lot of people to uh, embrace technology and not only that realize how uh, inexpensive a lot of it is i mean go back you know 15 20 years and okay great you want a basic website every tiny every character had to be coded from scratch uh, on you know more archaic systems with a lot less automations and uh automatic you know press tab and it fills finishes the line of code for you you know et cetera et cetera so, okay, great. You want a really basic website? Please pay me, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. And now that same really basic website, uh, you can just sign up to WordPress, which is free and open source. And then you, you know, select a theme or, uh, you know, square pay, square space, Wix, et cetera, uh, where if you're looking for something basic, okay, great. That cost is, is gone. Uh, so many businesses, uh, throughout the past year, almost two now have, uh, have developed like, apps. I got contacted by 
a laundromat and they were like, Hey, like we just developed this app. And so now instead of people coming to our laundromat, we now have uh, like task rabbit, like contracts, especially basically the Uber of laundry locally. We just go to their house, we pick it up and then they bring it to the laundromat. They put it in the machine and then it runs its cycle. And when it's done, nice. somebody else comes <laughs> and they bring it back. There was a, uh, there was a, uh, a meat, uh, there was like a, a butcher shop in New York City that I can't remember the name, but they absolutely exploded in growth and they had to develop like an online ordering system and so many restaurants around me. Uh, I'm in New Hampshire, which is not the most tech friendly uh, place in the world. Uh, it was there was like 10 places that we would order from because these are places that we can order online from. Great. Aside from like Uber Eats and DoorDash and whatnot. And now almost everybody has their online ordering figured out. Uh, they realize that, oh, this isn't this thing that has to be built from scratch. It's going to cost tens of thousands of dollars, you know, like it did when we looked into it, you know, 10 years ago. But now right. that we're, our hand is being forced. Now we have to find a way to do it in a way to do it cost effectively. And, oh, we don't have to build this from scratch. There's literally an API that costs $5 a month that has already built the technology for us. We just need someone to build us a nice looking interface for it. It's uh, it's an amazing thing to watch occur. So, and it's not slowing down. There will be more changes like this. And this is why, like I said, go to the experts. So there you go, Jared Spiewak. Uh, what's the best way if folks want to reach you? Of course, they can go to cometfuel.com uh, if they can find out about you and and the and the team. Uh, if they wanted to reach out personally, what's the the top way to find you? Yeah. So if you want to reach out personally, I'd recommend connecting with me on LinkedIn. And what I'm trying to do is slowly over time, when I have time, is build up my YouTube channel. So if you just look up Jared Spiewak on YouTube, there's not much on there right now, but I am trying to make a much bigger uh, push for it. So I'd really appreciate anybody um, engaging with me there. I liked your, uh, your your agency is dead one. That was really, I, I quite, it's like your contact is really cool. And it's, uh, like you said, we can look at websites all we want, just spend some time with a person. And, and it's been a real pleasure to learn from you today. And folks inevitably are going to, they should lean in, you know, because this is the kind of stuff. That's why I love podcasting so much more than just like, even like going long form too. Everybody said to me, like, don't, don't go long form. Like people don't have the attention for over 30 minutes. I'm like I, the data has not proven that out. I can tell you without a doubt that being longer form, number one, listenability is higher. And number two, every single person has a canned set of responses for the first 20 to 30 minutes. And after that, you're actually having a real like personal discussion with somebody. And it's cool because they get to like hear your nuances, your your character comes out and it's so much more effective than just like, yeah, here's the three things that we do really well. I'm like, they could go to your website and find that out. This is why I love going going longer. And and uh, well, if I'm lucky, I'll be a client as well someday soon. So uh, with that, Jared Spiewak, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.